Jesus was crucified. And they call it that because Golgotha means skull. And as you see, looking at that cave, which is now uh, overlooking a Palestinian bus station, you'll see that there's two outcroppings that look like eyes and a nose. And of course, that's changed quite a bit over the years. But we believe this is significant because we see that this is on the outskirts of town. It's right on the road. That's the road to Damascus. So it's a place that would be visible. What is special about this place? The place of the skull. It was the place of death. But yet when Jesus was crucified here, it wasn't just the end for Jesus. It was just the beginning. The place of the skull became a place of resurrection. And how important it is that right here on the hill of Golgotha, right next to it, is a garden, an area where they used for making wine. And yet in that area, we see there's a garden tomb area where we believe Jesus was put in that tomb and rose again on the third day. Ladies and gentlemen, you can have the hope that no matter how destitute situations look in your life, ladies and gentlemen, if God be for you, who can be against you? In Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Aren't you glad that you know he rose again on the third day? Amen. I call your attention tonight to Mark chapter 15. We begin our reading in verse 15. And I want to say how excited and happy that we are for each of you that are here tonight on this very special night when we commemorate not just the resurrection of Jesus, but also the days leading up to it. And uh, just last week, uh, a number of us were over in the uh, Jerusalem and the Palestine area, the Holy Land area up in Galilee. And then on Thursday of last week, we walked that Via Della Rosa, went down into the area where the trial was, where they still have markings on those stones where the Roman soldiers played their games and uh, wasted and killed time as they waited for Pilate and all the proceedings that would take place. And then uh, the beating of Jesus and the area that they drug him uh, down as he tried to carry that cross. And that whole process reminds us all again and again of how much Jesus loves each and every one of us. Aren't you thankful that the Lord loved us when we were not worthy of that love? But what a good God we serve. Mark 15, 15, we begin our reading. And so Pilate, of course this is referring to the Roman governor, willing to content the people, released Barabbas unto them and delivered Jesus when he had scourged him to be crucified. Of course, Pilate, thinking this was just a Jewish issue, did not want to be involved, thought he could whip, beat uh, Jesus and, and that terrible um, whipping and lashing of his back would appease the crowd. And um, they found that it was not to appease them. Verse 16, and the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole band. This referring, of course, to the band of, of uh, soldiers and those that were there. And they clothed him with purple and plaited a crown of thorns and put it about his head and began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. They smote him on the head with a reed and did spit upon him and bowing their knees, worship him. All of this in mockery, the Roman soldiers and those of that court. Verse 20, and when they had mocked him, they took off the purple from him and put his own clothes on him and led him out 
to crucify him. And they compelled one Simon, a Cyrenian who passed by coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. And they bring him unto the place Golgotha, which is being interpreted the place of a skull. You may be seated and thank you for standing. I want to talk to you for a few moments tonight about the Prince of Peace. Matthew, Mark, and John all describe the place where Jesus was crucified. They describe it as the place of the skull, which is the Hebrew interpretation of the word Golgotha. Different people throughout history have attempted to explain where this specific place could be Golgotha. There was a lady by the name of Helen or Helena who declared that in a vision she had found the place where Jesus was crucified and the tomb where he was buried. Her son was Constantine, the emperor of Rome, and so when she declared this, as she went around the Holy Land declaring other specific holy sites, it was then that Constantine, the emperor of Rome, built a church over the site that Helena claimed was the site where Jesus was crucified and where he was buried. That church has stood for many, many years, and it is referred to even today as the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. I've been to that site, and it's very troubling as throngs of people fight uh, to touch a piece of the rock. All different Christian uh, groups, the Armenians, the Roman Catholics, the uh, Eastern Orthodox, all these different groups, they all vie for uh, certain areas of prominence within uh, this site. And the people that come in uh, have you know, just about turned it into a place of, of uh, worship because of their sincerity. Others have said that it is better translated when we look at the word Golgotha, if you take it from the Greek rather than the Hebrew, that it's better translated as cranium. And there is a little place near the sheep gate of old Jerusalem, which is around on the other side, that's sort of round like your cranium or my cranium would be. And they, they have found an old cemetery there. And you can see the, the temple mound and you can see where the temple once stood from that site. And they feel that whenever the veil was ripped in twain at the same time that Jesus hung on the cross that there had to be eyewitnesses of both of those things happening simultaneously, and that would be the only site where you could see the veil rip at the same time as Jesus hung on the cross and gave up the ghost. But there is another place that's near the old Damascus Road, on the outskirts of the old city walls near the Damascus Gate, and it was the site that we showed you um, just a few minutes ago in the video. It has some historical evidence as being a site of stonings and a, a site of crucifixions going back to the first century. Uh, one archaeologist described it as a sort of amphitheater that's formed by the gentle slopes on the west and the whole population of the city might easily witness from the vicinity anything taking place on the top 
of the cliff. This we know about the Romans and the way they did executions. They would always do it by a road, a busy road, and they would do it up on a hill so as for it to be a, a sign to everyone that this is what happens if you defy the Roman government. And so there are these different places. According to Dr. Chaplin, who is a Jewish uh, uh, tradition that he points to, he says that this hill is described in the Hebrew as Bethlehashikiah, or house of stoning, while early Christian tradition fixes it as the scene of the martyrdom of Stephen. So there are some archaeologists and historians that believe strongly that this Golgotha area, which is now just above a Palestinian bus station, attached to the garden tomb area, they believe that this was not only the place where Jesus was crucified, but could possibly also be the site where Stephen was stoned, as we read about in the book of Acts. Claude R. Condor, a lieutenant in the Royal Engineers, who was appointed in 1872 by the Palestine Exploration Fund to conduct a mapping survey of Western Palestine, he concluded in his book that's titled Tent Work in Palestine that his conviction was that this rocky knoll was the authentic site of the crucifixion of Jesus. In addition, John states that the place was near a garden and a tomb. They found that adjoining the site was a tomb that was a tomb that was prepared for a very wealthy Jew that appeared to have never been used before. That area is now referred to as the garden tomb area and it is adjacent to this area known as the place of the skull which could have possibly been where Jesus was crucified. Major General Charles Gordon who was a famous general, he, he visited Jerusalem in 1883 and he became a proponent of Skull Hill bearing the name of Golgotha. The name of this legendary military commander has become so entwined with Skull Hill that now this site is oftentimes referred to as Gordon's Calvary. In reality, Gordon was very much influenced by the scholarship of Condor and by his conversation and, and uh, correspondence with uh, Schnick, who was, Conrad Schnick was a prominent Swiss archaeologist and an architect that was involved in a lot of the planning of, of Jerusalem in the 18th and 19th centuries. In a letter that uh, General Gordon sent to his sister on January 17, 1883, on his second day in Jerusalem, he said this, and I quote, I feel for myself convinced that the hill near the Damascus gate is Golgotha. From it, you can see the temple, the Mount of Olives, and the bulk of Jerusalem. His stretched out arms would, as it were, embrace it all day long. He was referring to Isaiah 65, 2, that says, I stretch out my arms. Close to it is the slaughterhouse of Jerusalem. Quiet pools of blood are lying there. It is covered with tombs of Muslims. There are many rock-hued caves and gardens surround it. Now the place of execution in our Lord's time must have been and continue to be an unclean place. So to me, this hill is left bare ever since it was first used as a place of execution, end of quote. 
This individual was saying that where Jesus was crucified would have had to be an unclean place, a place that was barren, a place that was a place of troubles and trials and heartache and hurt. It's also very possible that Stephen was stoned at this same site. It seems interesting to me that Jesus Christ, God manifest in the flesh, the Prince of Peace, would be crucified at the very location where indeed others had been crucified and perhaps even stoned. There's a picture that they're going to put up on the screen that is a picture taken around 1900. And as you can see, the Damascus Road runs nearby. And as you can see, looking up on that skull hill, if you look into the middle of that picture, you can, appear, you can see what appears to be a skull, two eyes and a nose and a mouth that's slightly off-centered. But it would take more than just that to convince anyone studying all the historical artifacts as to what it was that really would make one place stand out over the other. It wasn't long after they discovered this particular area, they began to read about the history of this area and see what it meant that they found this garden tomb area, this, this tomb, as it were, that looked like it had not been used. Or if it had been used, it had only been slightly used. How many of you know that the Lord only needed it for a couple of days? And so in 1893, the garden tomb area and the land adjacent to what you see here behind us was purchased by a group of Christians in England and it is still owned and operated by a non-denominational group called the Garden Tomb Association. It is a place of great peace and tranquility as you walk around, as you take communion and as you, you meditate on the love of Christ. What I believe to be one of the more compelling features is perhaps not very compelling to a non-believer, and that is how you feel in your spirit when you're at each one of these different places. When you go to this church of the Holy Sepulchre, it's a place of great conflict and tension with all of these different Christian groups warring, jealously guarding their little place of real estate, vying for attention and for prominence and control. The competing Christian groups are so at war with each other that the keys to the church are entrusted even to this very day, to a Muslim family. Imagine that. These so-called Christians cannot be trusted with the key to the place supposedly built over the tomb of Jesus, the Prince of Peace. So they have to give the key to a Muslim family who would not care about such things. Condor was particularly appalled at the religious condition of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre when in 1878 he wrote in a book called Tent Work in Palestine, A Record of Discovery and Adventure, Volume 1, page 327, and I quote, there are those who would willingly look upon it as the real place of the Savior's tomb, this now referring to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. But I confess that for myself, having witnessed the annual orgy with disgrace, its walls, the annual imposture which is countenanced by its priests and the fierce emotions of sectarian hate, and blind fanaticism which are called forth by the supposed miracle 
and remembering the tale of blood connected with the history of the church, I should be loath to think that the sacred tomb has been a witness for so many years of so much human ignorance, folly, and crime. And so, ladies and gentlemen, you have this contrast when you visit these two sites. One is all of this jostling and fighting and, and all of this back and forth as you, you try to push through the crowd. You don't feel anything in your spirit. You don't feel anything in your heart. It's just like a shrine and you leave feeling empty. The way that I think a lot of people that go to church around this world feel when they leave church. But tonight, as we consider the death of Christ and His resurrection... I feel it is important for us to understand the value of peace. Because when you walk around that garden tomb area, there's a sense of peace. When I first went to that site over 25 years ago, my Jewish guide did not go in. His name was Amos. He stayed out in the bus because the garden tomb area has their own guides. And so as I came out of that site, I had been to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, of the Nativity, all of these shrines. But when I came out of this place... I felt something in my spirit. I was rejoicing. I was happy. I felt the joy of the Lord. I got in the bus and I was bouncing around and I said, Amos, that's the best sight that we've seen the whole time we've been here. And he kind of smirked and said, how can you be so excited about seeing where he's not? And I think the Lord helped me to have a good answer. Because I said, his absence in that tomb confirms his presence in my heart. Oh, hallelujah. Ladies and gentlemen, we may not be able to explain everything to unsaved loved ones, but I'm here to tell you that if you've ever come to the Lord, you've experienced the Prince of Peace for yourself. Hallelujah. And you know beyond the shadow of a doubt that not only did Jesus die, but He rose again, and He is alive forevermore, and we feel Him in our spirit. Just as these two different sites of where Jesus was possibly crucified and buried, just as they contrast peace and anxiety, I believe that it is just a microcosm of how each of us can live our lives. We can live our life in the peace of the Holy Ghost, or we can live our life full of fear and anxiety. We can live out our Christian faith with the joy of the Lord, or we can attach our faith to empty rituals and traditions. I believe that this is one reason why the Lord warned us not to take communion as a vain tradition, but to do it in remembrance of Him. Ladies and gentlemen, when we take communion, it is a victorious remembrance of a God that suffered, yes. Of a God who bled and died for us, yes. But a God that fulfilled His mission and He sits upon the circle of the earth tonight. And heaven is His throne and earth is His footstool. The question that I ask each of us tonight is what do we remember about Him? We remember, ladies and gentlemen, that He is the Prince of Peace. That He calmed the waters of the Sea of Galilee in the midst of a storm. And those waters are still calm today. As we went out on that Sea of Galilee and it was so peaceful, somebody said, why do you think it's so peaceful out here? 
They turn off the engines of that little boat and you sit out there and you sing Christian songs and there's all kinds of things going on around and attacks in Syria and bombs being dropped and Israel's surrounded by 45 million Arabs that hate them and would like for them all to be dead. And guess what? You can sit out there and you can still feel the peace of God. And somebody made mention of this and I think it's good to remind ourselves of it tonight. That his voice when he said peace be still is still in those waters and is still in that hillside. Ladies and gentlemen, when the Lord stepped up on the borders of your heart and said, peace be still, when you are struggling with sin and addiction, you may have fallen, you may have stumbled, but I've come to remind you that that voice that spoke peace into your life is still speaking peace into your life. It has not diminished. blood of Jesus has not diminished over 2,000 years later. It is still the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all sin. It is still the blood of Jesus that picks us up again after we've stumbled and fallen and washes us and cleanses us. His grace and His mercy is still pursuing us. So what turbulence is surrounding your life right now. Prince of Peace is wanting to step into your life. When we were in Jerusalem, we met a man who was a pastor of a Christian church in Caesarea Philippi where Jesus was speaking to Peter and asking him questions about whom do men say that I am. And Peter finally said, Thou art the Christ, Son of God. And Jesus said, Upon this rock I'll build my church. That revelation, that relationship. This man who pastors a Christian church in that very city, the only Christian church in that very small community. He said, I was born a Jew. My father was a rabbi. But he said, I had to go all the way to South Africa to meet a man who witnessed to me about Jesus. He said, I could not deny the peace that this man had in his life. And he said, I was envious of him. He said, when I converted to Christianity, I found peace that I had looked for my entire life. He said, now I want to ask you a question. He was looking at all of our group, several pastors in our group. He said, since you've been in Israel, I want to ask you this. Did you just tour the sites and look at stones and rocks that are thousands of years old that'll never move? Or did you provoke the people of this land to jealousy? Did you witness to lively stones? First, I wasn't sure what he meant by that phrase, provoke them to jealousy, but I recognized that it was a phrase found from the scriptures. I got out my iPhone and, and searched it real quick, and sure enough, there it was in Romans eleven eleven when Paul wrote, and he said, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. But rather through their fall, referring to the Jews, salvation is come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. You know why Jesus saved you and I as Gentiles? To provoke the Jews to jealousy. And he said, I want to know something. Since you've been over here touring this holy land, have you witnessed? Have you provoked them to jealousy? We said, what would they be jealous of? He said, they're jealous of the peace that you have. He said, they may know the Old Testament, but they don't know the Prince of Peace. 
Because that was the prophecy of who Jesus would be in the New Testament. He said, that's what I couldn't deny. He said, I'm witness to all of my family, but I couldn't deny that when I came to Jesus, I found peace. Oh, I feel like preaching to somebody. There's a God that wants to remind you that there's peace in the midst of the storm. There is a joy that is genuine. And it provokes those to jealousy that, do, that, that don't have that peace, that don't have that joy. It's not the location in Israel of Golgotha and the garden tomb that matters. It's the location of the love of God in your heart and in my heart that really matters. The Temple Mount is very fascinating, has a lot of history and a lot of significance to the end time. But the Bible says that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Ghost. And it's more important what we're doing with this temple than what they're doing with that temple. Am I using my mouth to worship God? Am I using my mind to meditate on the Word of God? Am I using my hands to help those that are in need? Am I using my heart to connect to God's heart? This is what we do in remembrance of Him. We remember of God that in the midst of trouble and trial and possibly a location of death and sorrow, Jesus Christ conquered death, hell, and the grave. And the veil was ripped in twain. Meaning that no longer is it just for a select few. But everybody, man, woman, boy, and girl, matters not your nationality, matters not your heritage, matters not who your mom or your dad or how much money you've got or don't have. All that matters is, do you want to know God? Are you ready to know the Prince of Peace? The one that wants to write, get right up in your heart and in my heart and speak words of comfort and joy. That's what I want us to remember tonight. I want us to remember the peace speaker. The one who is still speaking peace into our lives. When we partake of this supper, what do we remember? We remember a Savior who loved you and I so much. The Bible says there is no greater love than a man would lay down his life for his friends. That's what we remember. We remember not just his death, but we remember his life, his burial, his resurrection. We remember that this life has hurt and hope. We remember that there is war and peace. There is darkness and light. And the one that makes the difference is Jesus Christ. He's the one that makes the difference because he is the Prince of Peace. Oh, would you stand to your feet tonight? Hallelujah. Would you lift your voices in your hands? unto the Lord right now would you thank him that he's still speaking peace what a mighty God we serve Lord what a wonderful Savior you are God I thank you for the peace of your spirit I thank you for the hope of heaven I thank you Lord that we are still remembering what a great God you are we don't do this out of tradition or some vain ritual, Lord, but we do it because we love you, God, and we obey your word. We remember that you're the answer to every trial. 
every life that is hurting tonight, no matter where they are. You're the answer, God. You're the solution. You're the hope for a lost and a dying world. We rejoice in your presence tonight, oh God. We exalt you. Oh, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Oh, I feel the presence of God here right now. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. We're going to partake tonight of the Lord's Supper as He has instructed us to do in His Word. The Bible says as oft as you do it. It doesn't say how often you have to do it. But it said as oft as you do, do it in remembrance of me. So we, we don't approach this with any kind of just sort of a flippant spirit or attitude, but we recognize that this is a very important moment. It's a time of examination of our own lives. The Bible speaks about how important it is for each of us to examine our own lives. And as the ushers are coming now and they're going to prepare to serve you, I, I ask that you would take just a few moments and just turn the spotlight of God's Word and His Spirit on your own heart and your own life for just a moment. If there be anything in your life that you say, God, it's, it's not right, I, I want you to ask God right now to just forgive you and put it under the blood. Would you do that all over this building? Every single person. Lord, we recognize that we are sinners. We are lost and undone without you. We recognize our dependence upon you, Lord. What a mighty God you are. We ask you, God, to cleanse our heart and our minds right now. Cleanse us, Lord, of any sins of our thoughts, sins of our hearts, sins of our hands. Anything, Lord, that may be in our spirit, we ask you, Lord, to forgive us right now. Cleanse us, Lord, from the top of our head to the sole of our feet. Cleanse us with your word, O oh Lord. Cleanse us with your spirit, O oh God. We recognize, Lord, that you're the one that can take the weight of sin off of any person's life. You can speak peace, Lord, into any environment. You're not a God that's just far off on a journey somewhere. You're not beyond the Milky Way, out of reach or out of touch. But, Lord, you're just as close as the mention of your name. So it is, Lord, that we call on that beautiful name of Jesus. Hallelujah. I'm going to invite you, if you would like to receive communion, if you don't want to partake of communion, you're certainly not obligated to. But if you would like to receive communion, we invite you to come down. You can just step out from where you're standing and come down to this altar area. The ushers will serve you. And uh, we're going to ask you as you receive communion that you'll just uh, hold on to the wafer and hold on to the little, um, the little uh, uh, vial of drink there. And we're going to all receive it at the same time. Uh, at the very top, there is a little uh, wafer that's on the top, and uh, we'll peel that off first. But those of you that would like to receive communion, just come on down to the altar area, and the ushers are going to serve you as you're coming down. If you would rather not uh, partake of communion, you're, you're certainly welcome to just stay in your pew. 
um, and you're not obligated to. Some of you that are here tonight, you may say, well, I'm not, a, I'm not a member of First Pentecostal Church. You don't have to be a member of First Pentecostal Church to receive communion. We do hope that you're a member of the body of Christ. But certainly all of us together, there is something beautiful about all of us coming together and being able to put our, our arms around not just the remembrance of our peace speaker, but also around this reflection that each of us do individually and then all of us do collectively. So if you'd like to, just come on down. Those of you that are in these center aisles, if you don't mind just pressing down, there's people that are trying to get down the aisles. There's still room in this aisle. Just come on down, and uh, we'll give you just a few moments. What a beautiful, beautiful crowd of people here tonight. Thank you so much for coming out here and being with us. That's beautiful. Some more are coming right down the center aisle. God bless you. There's some more room on this side. If you want to just press down right to the altar area, those that are behind you can come on down. And uh, we're going to just gather down here, and we're going to receive communion together. Amen. What a great God we serve. Ushers are, are getting around now and making sure that everybody has uh, one of these in their hand. If you don't have one, would you just raise your hand so the ushers can see? It looks like everybody is. All right, we've got some right down front here. Amen. This lady right here. Amen. God bless her. Anybody else, just raise your hand if you haven't received. Ushers are making their way around. Thank you, Lord. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Amen. All right, I believe everybody has, has been served. We're going to uh, pray right now, and then after we pray, we're going to invite you to receive uh, communion, all of us together. But I wonder right now if we could just pray together, and could we just once again thank the Lord and ask God to bless this right now as we do this in remembrance of Him. Lord, what a great God you are. We're just continually amazed, Lord, at how good you are to each of us. We recognize, Lord, that we're not worthy. We're not worthy to receive this. We're not worthy, God. You suffered, you bled and died. You took all of our sins on that cross, Lord. You took all of our shame, all of our hurt, all of our pain. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for this peace you've given us. Thank you for your spirit that surrounds us like a sea. Thank you, Lord, for this new life you have given us. We are so grateful tonight, oh Lord. We bless your name tonight, oh God. We worship you tonight, oh God. Hallelujah, hallelujah. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Hallelujah, Lord. Oh, precious.
precious Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Oh, what a mighty God you are, Lord. What a mighty God you are, Lord. Hallelujah. In the name of Jesus, we receive this communion. In the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Oh, God, we worship you tonight, Lord. Hallelujah, hallelujah. God, we lift our hearts and our voices unto you. We thank you, Lord. You can make all things brand new, Lord. Oh, God, we magnify you tonight. Oh, bless the name of the Lord. Hallelujah. Bless the name of the Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. How he saved, how he raised me, how he filled me. That's it. That's it. Just spend a few moments right now. That's it. Let your mind drift back to when he first saved you. Oh, yes, Lord. 
once again that the very room the very room where they had the last supper was the very room that the Holy Ghost was poured out in oh hallelujah ladies and gentlemen those of us that are Pentecostal that have been filled with the Spirit of God we can't take one from the other hallelujah we take communion, we still rejoice because it's the Spirit of God that is still filling us every day. Hallelujah! It's still the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Oh, I feel victory tonight. Amen. God bless you tonight. Amen. You are dismissed in Jesus' name.